Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, former Secretary of State, former Democratic nominee for the presidency, former Senator John Kerry. What does he make of a White House in chaos? And how does he feel about his biggest achievement in office, the Iran deal, having been trashed by President Trump? I'm not going to be a John Kerry who makes that horrible Iran deal. Also. Sweden is known for ABBA, IKEA, Volvos, and meatballs, but also for its liberal policies. So why is this part of Scandinavia seeing a surge in the popularity of its far-right populist party? I will ask Carl Bildt, Sweden's conservative former prime minister, who has grave fears about the future of Sweden and Europe. Finally, Steve Bannon. Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter. Why liberals must listen to all voices, even those they disagree with. But first, here's my take. For those few people who still believe Donald Trump is unconventional but canny, that there's a method to the madness, the revelations of this week should clarify. Bob Woodward's new book and the New York Times op-ed make plain that behind Trump's ranting, impulsive, incoherent, and narcissistic facade lies a ranting, impulsive, incoherent, and narcissistic man. But while the great presidential psychodrama captivates us, let's remember that there are real things happening in the real world that continue, trends that will prove consequential whether or not they get talked about on television. Perhaps the main reason we are not peering too far behind the curtain these days is that in general, things look good. The American economy is growing a bit faster than expected. Trump tries to take credit for this nearly every day. We are the economic envy of the entire world. And some credit is justified. Economic growth last quarter was 4.2 percent. And as you people know, it was headed down. The widespread deregulation has probably had the effect of easing constraints on business activity. The sweeping tax cut freed up cash for businesses. So, this infusion of money, however, is likely to produce only a temporary bump, a kind of sugar high that comes at the cost of a massive increase in deficits and deepening inequality. But consider the broader trends that are shaping the world. Peace among the major powers allows for the continued surge of economic activity in most of the world. Globalization and an ongoing technological revolution have allowed growth to persist without the one economic factor that has almost always stopped it in the past, inflation. 
You see, it's hard for prices to rise when goods and services can be supplied cheaply, either by a machine or software, or a person in some developing country, China, India, Bangladesh. But look below the surface at the forces producing these benign circumstances, and they all seem increasingly under pressure. Take peace. America, the world's leading architect of the international order and of stability, seems determined to disrupt it. Trump is at heart an isolationist who constantly questions the value of the alliance structure that has kept the world peaceful and stable since 1945. He either wants the United States to withdraw from the world or to turn its international role into some kind of profitable quasi-colonial enterprise, for example, by extracting more payments from Europe, Japan and Gulf states or confiscating Iraq's oil. His administration has been in major trade disputes with its top trading partners the European Union, China, Canada, Mexico. That leaves the technological revolution that has transformed the world. But here also, the trends are not entirely promising for America. First, the country is living off seed capital. Investments in basic science and research that were made in the 60s and 70s continue to undergird American tech companies today. Could Amazon, Facebook, and Apple have dominated the world without the internet and GPS, both technologies developed by the United States government. The next wave of massive investment in science and technology is indeed taking place, but in China. And then there is the rising backlash to technology. Tech companies are increasingly seen as having monopoly or oligopoly power, crushing competition, ransacking consumer data and then profiting from it, intruding on privacy, and being part of an elite that is utterly divorced from the rest of society. The best evidence for this is that Trump, who does have good instincts for where and when to pander, has recently taken to tweeting against the tech giants with regularity. Despite the Donald Trump freak show, we are living in peaceful and prosperous times. But beneath the surface, there are currents that could disrupt the calm, especially for the United States. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right into it with the former Secretary of State, John Kerry. He is the author of a new memoir, Every Day is Extra. I want you to start by explaining the title. It comes out of your service in Vietnam. It does. It's augmented by life itself, but service in Vietnam shared a lesson with my crew and I and others I know who've been there that if you're lucky enough to survive and you come home, and so many other good people didn't, you, you feel a gift. You have a, a sort of sense of responsibility about how you should lead your life because you are fortunate. And it's a gift to be able to have a life of purpose, to be able to get things done, and always recognize uh, the degree to which you are blessed because of that. It's also a lesson that there are a lot of worse things in life than losing an election or losing a debate or uh, whatever, but I think it puts a lot of things in perspective. And, and, and importantly, it encourages you to maximize the days you have. So I think those of us who live with that sense uh, are lucky. And, and it's a way of 
trying to encourage other people to realize you don't have to go to war to have that sense. Uh, anybody who's had cancer or anybody who's had an accident or whatever, you learn how fragile things are. And I think it's a great philosophy by which to, to live. You say that we are in a constitutional crisis um, because uh, at, now the Woodward books, the New York Times op-ed make plain, uh, in your view, I think that the, the, the president does not seem capable of the job. Is that a fair? I think it's more than doesn't seem capable. I mean, we have had confirmed now for more than a year and a half examples, some by virtue of people who uh, write a book and and talk to a person like Woodward and tell him what they're seeing and observing. And Woodward is obviously a terrific reporter who knows how to gather his facts and protect his flanks. Uh, so his credibility is very, very high. And, 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 and some of the evidence is come very directly from a president himself. For instance, when you tweet uh, chastising an attorney general of the United States for following the law and doing what the Justice Department is supposed to do by holding Republican congressmen as accountable as anybody else uh, and indicting them. Uh, and, and the president puts it in the context of affecting the elections. You have a president who clearly doesn't understand America, doesn't understand the Constitution, doesn't understand the role of the Justice Department, the separation of powers, and that's dangerous. And when you link it to uh, his rush to a summit with Kim Jong-un, his pronouncements about nuclear weapons afterwards, uh, the lack of any certainty or precision to what the uh, accountability is for the weaponry that exists, let alone the denuclearization, we're working in a very, very different and frankly dangerous world for our country. Do you think that those cabinet members who were whispering about the 25th Amendment, uh, removing the president because he was uh, unfit for office, uh, uh, unable to perform his duties, was, was that the right way to think about this? I think the right way to think about this right now is the elections in two months. I think that is the greatest course correction you can have for all of this behavior. And it is the one thing where average citizens have an opportunity to be able to exercise judgment and be involved in the political process as they ought to be. It's the best of our democracy, frankly. And that's what I think we ought to be thinking about. Uh, and, and it may be the strongest message and the strongest antidote to what is happening today. What about Republicans, particularly in the Senate? You know these people well. You served with them for years. Um, are you surprised um, that there is nobody of, of great stature? I mean, there are a few who are not running for re-election who did, but are you surprised that somebody like Mitch McConnell wouldn't say something critical? Or is this what politics now is? It's tribal and... Fred, I think, I think that this is what the United States Senate was defined for, this moment, this kind of crisis. And it is a crisis. You effectively have a non-president a certain amount of the time. If, if, if a person is stealing a document from his desk and, and, and what the president would intend is not happening, or if you have orders issued to the Secretary of Defense, former general, uh, to assassinate people, which obviously is wrong and against the law, but, and he doesn't do it, clearly... Uh, 
you have a situation where selectively the president is not the president. And that's a very dangerous situation. That is not constitutional. That is not the way it is supposed to work. Uh, but people are protecting it because of the impulsiveness and uh, <laughs> gap between the president's understanding and reality and the norm. Uh, so this is unique. And the Senate was designed to be the great check. That's why you have six-year terms. That's why you have this different set of rules from the House. Uh, sadly, over the years, as I began to see it in the late 1990s and, and then onwards, much, some of, the, some of the traits of the House have been transferred to the Senate. And I think the Senate is diminished by that over the years. years. This is a time where senators should be standing up to protect the Constitution and protect the institution, the Senate itself. Uh, but they seem to be abdicating that responsibility. They seem to be uh, allowing the president to behave in ways that are clearly uh, outside of any norm whatsoever that are dangerous. And as a result, they are not defending the Constitution that they swore to defend, nor the institution. They are defending party and president. And, and I think that's wrong. When we come back on GPS, we will talk about the nuclear deal with Iran. It came out of a grueling negotiation that John Kerry spearheaded. President Trump has, of course, withdrawn from it. What happens? I will get Secretary Kerry's take when we come back. On July 14, 2015, then Secretary of State John Kerry stood before the world and announced against all odds the United States, Germany, the UK, France, China and Russia had reached a nuclear agreement with Iran. On May 8, 2018, President Donald Trump stood before the world and announced he was withdrawing from what he has called the worst deal in history. The United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Joining me now, John Kerry. Um, what is your reaction to, to the United States withdrawing from that deal? Well, I think it's a very uh, dangerous and ill-advised move that is not based on any uh, broad strategy that is drawing other countries to the table to be supportive of it. Uh, rather, I think it represents a, a uh, campaign promise made by the president, the heat of a campaign, which he followed up on, but which has no basis in achieving the goals that the president has set out, if there are goals. Uh, this agreement, merely saying this agreement is the worst agreement, actually doesn't make it the worst agreement. It is, in fact, the single strongest, single most accountable, single most uh, transparent nuclear agreement anywhere in the world. What the president has done is simply said, I'm going to get out. And whatever dangers might have existed way down the road, if they were trying to break out or something different were happening, which we would have known and had every military option available to us way down the road or then or now, he suddenly rushed to making the way down the road be now, tomorrow. And in doing so, he has empowered the hardliners in Iran. 
He's given power to the people who said, you can't negotiate with the United States. You can't trust them because they're the great Satan and they're going to they're going to burn you. Well, guess what? Donald Trump proved them right. And he's put President Rouhani and those who are trying to move to a more rational and reasonable position in a much more difficult uh, political and, you know, substantively difficult position with the Ayatollah, with the IRGC, the hardline Republican Guard of Iran. And I think um, it actually works against American interest as a result of that. It's great to be with you. What is the danger of Donald Trump talking to Vladimir Putin without any aids for two hours, one-on-one? Uh, -on -one? He'd say, look, that's how, that's how you establish a personal rapport and solve problems, get things done. Well, I, I think it's, look, I, I, I am in favor of diplomacy that involves personal engagement where you talk to a leader and, and, and you are moving in a direction. The problem with this is evidently, uh, there was no shared sense of strategy in what that conversation would be. Uh, I don't with know. Who, with his age. With even with his own people. And uh, because of what we know about this president and his style and his approach in those kinds of meetings, and I think you saw it evidenced in the press conference that took place afterwards, the president came up uh, out publicly and, and appraised President Putin's notion that an American ambassador ought to be subjected to interrogation by the Russians in exchange for a visit. I mean, this was a remarkable moment in which the President of the United States, as John McCain said and many other people observed, did not defend the United States against the hacking, that he literally accepted President Putin's uh, denials, and he praised the strength with which President Putin had denied it. Uh, I think the danger of any solo conversation is that it simply augments that kind of uh, kowtowing. And, and, and I think most people have serious questions about what it is that Russia has in terms of uh, information about Donald Trump that might force him not to be able to be forceful with President Putin. Do you think that Putin has something on Donald Trump? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I will tell you this. When we went to, to, to Moscow, uh, we were advised by everyone not to engage in any kind of conversation in a hotel or in a public place uh, and to recognize that we were being observed and followed and listened to wherever we were. So it is incomprehensible to me that Donald Trump as private businessman would have gone there at any point in time and that they didn't know everything that he was doing. Stay with us. When we come back in a moment, I will ask Secretary Kerry who should run against Donald Trump in 2020. Trump wants John Kerry to run against him. Will he? The 2018 midterm elections are less than 60 days away. I wanted to get some political insight for a man who in the 46 years since his first election has run for the U.S. House of Representatives, for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, five times for the U.S. Senate, and once for president. We are back with John Kerry, author of Every Day is Extra. Um, so when you look at the political climate right now with this, you know, th this group of Americans who, seems, who seem angry but also very deeply supportive of Donald Trump, um, 
What is your sense of what the Democrats need to do? Um, you know, everyone has a sort of a, a, a strategy, but it seems to me the core issue is that Trump has connected almost emotionally with a group of Americans that Democrats were not able to. What should they do? Well, I think they have to have a better plan for making people's lives better. It's that simple. And I completely understand what has happened with respect to uh, Donald Trump and the support that he garnered. On the right and on the left in America and in between, people are appropriately angry. And I understand that anger. I mean, I watched this in the Senate when we went from the Gingrich Revolution to the Tea Party to the Freedom Caucus to Donald Trump's basically hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And it came about because Washington, politicians, the Congress was not getting the job done. It was not responding. Now, there are individuals in the city who want to do the right thing or are trying to, but as a group, as an institution, it is failing. You talk in the book about how the, the, the kind of take no prisoners partisanship uh, began in the 90s and was the Clinton presidency and Newt Gingrich and the new kind of Republican uh, majority. Um, that seems to be the point at which it became. I think that is when it turned. I do. I mean, that's when you began. You had these, you know, you had the white war. You had this yeah, interminable investigation, which was, none that were impeachable you know, legitimate perhaps in its beginning initial effort to say we're going to look at the white water. But that's not what it did. It went way beyond that and on and on and on. But more than that, you had a concerted effort to destroy a presidency. And that now seems to have become... The, the, the norm that the new president comes in, we're going to destroy it. We're not going to see how we could work together at least for a year, the two years before you have another election, and try to get things done for the country. We're not building things in America. We don't, our infrastructure is in desperate need. It's a dry issue. A lot of people would say, oh, don't talk about it, nobody cares. It, it matters whether you can ride a train in China that goes 300 miles an hour from Beijing to the coastline. I've ridden on it. My water didn't even move in my glass. It's extraordinary. We're not doing that in America. We have gridlock in city after city after city because we're not building the kind of transportation systems we need. Think of the jobs that could be created. Think of, you know, China's engaged in a trillion dollar expenditure for the one belt, one road. They're touching 68 nations. They build a railroad system that has 49 different routes to nine European countries. And we're sitting here with what? With the Acela? that goes from New York to Washington, it can't even go the 150 miles an hour it could go, more than about 18 miles of the entire trip. We went to the moon, we invented the internet, we should be ashamed of what is not happening now and decide we need to make it happen. So that's what I think uh, is at stake uh, at this moment. And I think if we begin to address our concerns, I think we'll find a lot of citizens begin to deal with each other again and find the common ground like John McCain and I did standing in his prison cell in Hanoi. President Trump says um, that if he should be so lucky that you will run against him in 2020. Will you take him up? I, I, listen, I am not dealing with, thinking about, or wasting time on 2020 right now. I don't think anybody should be. I think the only thing we should focus on is the election that takes place in, in two months. I have no plans to run for anything in my life right now. I really don't. But... Um, I, I think that the course correction that could put our country back on track is staring us in the face. The magic number, 54.2 percent. 
That's the number of eligible voters that voted in 2016. When I ran, and I'm not, you know, I didn't win, obviously, but when I ran and with George Bush, we had a 60.4% turnout. When Barack Obama was elected the first time, it was a 62.3% turnout. So the point I'm making is, it's, it's not the people who did vote that wound up affecting the outcome. It's the people who didn't vote. That's what is at stake in the next two months. You don't like what's happening now? You think we could have a better direction? You think you're not earning enough money? You think we could fix health care, whatever? You've got to organize around leaders who are prepared to go down to Washington and get the job done. John Kerry, pleasure to have you on, Thank sir. you. Next on GPS, we will pivot from the upcoming American election to the Swedish election that's happening this weekend. Why you should care about what's going on in Sweden, even if you didn't like ABBA or IKEA. It is election day in Sweden, and I wanted to bring your attention to something that's happening there that is very important. Look at the numbers behind the rise in popularity of a party called Sweden Democrats. In 2010, it got less than 6% of the vote. In 2014, 13%. Recently, the party has been polling even higher. Why am I telling you this? Well, don't be fooled by the name. Sweden Democrats is a far-right, anti-immigration, nationalist party with reported roots in neo-Nazism. That's right. In this country known for its welfare state, its focus on egalitarianism, on child-rearing, on human rights, on environmentalism— a far-right party could finish in the top three. What in the world? How did this happen? Well, joining me now is a fantastic guest, Sweden's former prime minister, Carl Bildt. Carl, is there a simple bottom line that explains this? Is it immigration? I think that's part of it. Uh, this is the pattern that we've seen in the elections throughout Europe for a couple of years, that we have the emergence of populist parties to the right. We didn't have those before. And they could be 10, 15, 20 or somewhat, uh, somewhat above that of the electorate. Um, but it is a major change in the Swedish political system. And, of course, the agitation that they have against immigrants, against European integration and the European Union is uh, deeply disturbing for the future of the country. Uh, do you think it is a is there a kind of coherent program uh, here, or is it a series of impulses, as you say? The two, the big ones, seem to be anti-immigrant, and that seems to me the dominant one, but anti-EU, anti-further uh, integration, loss of sovereignty. Uh, th that as well. I mean, it all adds up. Uh, whether it is coherent, I think that would be too, too, too kind to them. It is fairly incoherent, most of what they are saying. But, I mean, there, there are people also, rural people, elderly people, who feel that they are left behind. I mean, you've seen that tendency in the U.S. as well. So they try to play on those, saying, uh, <laughs> make Sweden great again, in the sense that things were better before. Go back to the 1950s. We didn't have any European Union. We didn't have any immigrants. The world was less complicated. Um, so it's that sort of sentiment. Uh, and immigration, I think, has been triggering something that is slightly wider than just that. What is striking to me, Carl, is I, I uh, looked at the numbers. And in, 19, uh, in 2017, Sweden saw a huge drop in immigration. And this mirrors a pattern Europe-wide. The immigration problem, the sense of a kind of out-of-control migration from, uh, from the South, seems to have stopped. Uh, and yet the, the backlash to it continues very strongly. 
That's true. If you look at the numbers, uh, we have the lowest numbers of refugees coming to Sweden that we've had probably for 10 years. And, and, and that applies to virtually all of Europe at the moment. But 2015, and the, uh, we had a million people coming within a couple of weeks, more or less, concentrated to a large extent in Germany and Sweden. That shock is still there. And the key task, not an easy one, has to be said, um, ahead of the country is to go to integrate all of those people. We took 160,000 of them, and uh, that was a higher share, if you see it in, in relation to the population, than any other European country. And to integrate them, bring into the labor market, learn our not entirely common language, Swedish, and educate very many of them, uh, it's, it's, it's a major undertaking. And, and a lot of people are worried, is this going to be too much of a strain on law and order, strain on the welfare state, those sorts of things. Uh, you're uh, a politician, Carl, so you, have, you understand that a lot of politics is not about the facts, it's about the emotional reaction to, mm -hmm. uh, to the circumstance. Yep. What is the best path to counter a certain kind of nativism and racism and paranoia about these things? I think that what is necessary, that applies to Sweden, that applies to other European countries as well, is we need to get hope back into politics. Uh, the development that we've seen in the last few years, say 10 years back or something like that, is there's been more fear. The future is not something that looks that hopeful any longer. The future looks increasingly problematic. There's an element of truth in that. We live in a more complicated world. Uh, we have a lot of changes, technology and others, that are in our society. And a lot of people then go defensive, say, things are not going in the right direction, things were better before. And, and politics have to some extent been playing along too much, in my opinion. We need to get hope back, optimism about the future. Um, I say that by acknowledging that it's somewhat easier said than done. Well, on that hopeful note, Carl Bill, pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you. After I interviewed Steve Bannon in May, there was an outcry, with many people wondering why I gave him a platform for his views. Well, I believe hearing his ideas was and is important. Bannon is the most articulate exponent of the movement that put Donald Trump in the Oval Office. He's now working to replicate that success all over Europe. Liberals need to understand that if they don't listen to people like Steve Bannon, those people don't disappear. It just means liberals will keep being surprised by election results. On Monday, Bannon was disinvited from the New Yorker Festival after a Twitter outcry. But as Malcolm Gladwell, a staff writer at that magazine, said, an ideas festival where you only invite your friends is called a dinner party. I wanted to talk about this dust-up and the related issue of free speech being curtailed on American college campuses and issues relating to that. Jonathan Haidt has written a fantastic book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, along with Greg Lukianoff. Jonathan, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me here, Fareed. So you say that there is a kind of an important shift that's taken place in the way we handle ideas, where it's almost like a, it has a new moral universe. Explain what you mean. So what began happening in 2014, 2015, is that professors and students who would say something, somebody would react to one word, 
and there would be protests and there would be demands that the person be punished or fired. And it took everyone by surprise. It seemed very strange. Um, but that's what we're seeing now is that the new generation of students, these are not millennials, these are the kids born after 1995, they've been raised in a very protected way. They're very sensitive to the power of words. But there's this huge clash on campus now. It's making it very difficult, for example, to teach a class. You speak for an hour, and if you get one word, if one person's offended by one word, they can report you. And what I'm struck by is for these, you know, this new generation, your political activism, engagement, your political ideas are all about, as you say, this call-out culture. Uh, you're not actually discussing ideas. You're just right. searching for trigger words. Give me an example of the kind of call-outs that you've, you've seen, heard about, witnessed. There was an episode at Claremont McKenna College where a dean wrote a very helpful email to a, a, a student who had said she feels marginalized and unwelcome, and the student seized on one word, which was meant kindly, but she interpreted it in the worst possible way. It launched literally hunger strikes demanding that the dean be fired. And so students and faculty are now much more, you hear the phrase over and over again, walking on eggshells, teaching on eggshells. Even use of gender pronouns has become highly politicized. I mean, That's right. That's right. And especially cross-cultural conversations. So I hear over and over again from foreign students. You know, we have so many foreign students who come here thinking they're going to find this vibrant intellectual climate. I have st students from China and Singapore. These are author more authoritarian countries. They come here and they say, I thought we were going to be able to speak freely and we have to watch ourselves all the time. You say that this is tied to actually the way these kids were raised. Explain yes. that. Yes, so uh, there was this very rapid change that occurred around 2013, 2014, but to understand why the kids born after 1995 are different, you have to go back to their childhoods in the 1990s and early 2000s. So for all of human history, kids would play outside in mixed age groups, um, and they would learn how to have conflicts, they would learn how to make rules, enforce the rules. Um, and sometime in the 1980s and 90s, we freaked out in this country. We got the idea, in part from cable TV or wherever, that if we let our, if our kids are outside and there's not an adult wa literally watching them, they might be abducted. So most of our generation, uh, by the age of seven or eight, we would walk to school, we would play outside, and we, you learn the important skills, the art of association, as de Tocqueville called it. Um, but beginning in the 80s and 90s, we cracked down on this, and now in the 2000s, you begin to see the stories about parents who are arrested arrested because their kids were caught playing in a park unsupervised. And if, imagine if we didn't let kids read until they were 14. That would slow down their reading. Well, what we do is we don't let kids be independent. We don't let them be outside supervising themselves until they're 13 or 14 in, most, in many communities now. Do you think that there's any, any shift, any pushback uh, taking place? <clears throat> I think we're ready for it. The rate of depression and anxiety has skyrocketed for teenagers, and especially for teenage girls. There was an article in the New York Times last week questioning this, but if you look at the hospital admission data for cutting their bodies with sharp objects, same pattern. If you look at the suicide rate, same pattern. Boys' suicide rate is up 25%. Girls' suicide rate is up 70%, 70. Over what period? From, if you, if you look at the first decade of the century, so 2000 to 2010, the, take the average per 100,000, and then you compare it to the last two years. It began going up in 2011 at steadily upwards. This is a catastrophe. People are just beginning to learn about it this year. So I think the will is there. I think a lot of parents want to break out. Uh, and so we have a lot of suggestions in the book for how to do that. You have to do it together with other parents with the school.
Jonathan, pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, Fareed. Thank you. And we will be back. Republicans have on occasion promised to cut entire executive branch departments, even if some of them couldn't always remember which ones. It's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> Rick Perry then famously went on to lead the agency he wanted to cut but couldn't think of the name of, the Energy Department. It brings me to my question, what nation announced this week it would get rid of half of its government ministries? Is it Laos, Argentina, Mozambique, or Mongolia? Instead of a book this week, I would like to recommend a podcast, my podcast. If you ever miss a show, you may know that you can get the GPS podcast at places like iTunes and Google Play. And now you can find the audio of our shows on Spotify. Just open the app, search my name or GPS and scroll down to podcasts. Now for the last look. Venezuela is in crisis. The IMF predicts that hyperinflation in that South American nation will swell to a million percent by year's end. One study found that nearly 90% of Venezuelans live in poverty and almost two-thirds said they cannot afford to buy food every day. Venezuela recently renamed its currency after getting rid of five zeros from the hyperinflated money and began increasing fuel prices to raise money for the depleted budget. To make matters worse, citizens have been stuck Passports and visas are nearly impossible to obtain. It can take years to move through the sluggish bureaucracy or up to $2,500 in bribes to get the necessary paperwork, according to CNN reporting. But there is good news. It just became easier for Venezuelans to flee their country, as 11 other Latin American states agreed this week to take in migrants who have expired travel documents, the BBC noted. Since 2014, some 2.3 million Venezuelans have fled from the economic disintegration of their nation into neighboring countries, according to the UN. That is about 7% of the entire population. Despite all this, the vice president says migration numbers are normal, warning that state enemies are trying to inflate the figures to justify some kind of intervention. But of course, theirs is not the first administration to claim fake news. The answer to my GPS challenge is B. Argentine President Mauricio Macri announced Monday that the government would close or combine about half of its ministries as an austerity measure. Macri hopes this will persuade the IMF to speed up the release of a sorely needed $50 billion bailout. Argentina's peso has lost half of its value against the dollar this year alone, potentially leaving Buenos Aires without cash to pay its debts. This crisis is just the latest in a century-long economic decline. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.